Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Jen Psaki is one of my favorite people, one of the most admirable people I know. I met her when she was a a young traveling press secretary on the Obama for President campaign in 2007, and I I watched her uh, grow and excel as a deputy White House press secretary, as the spokesperson for the State Department. Uh, as the communications director at the White House. And I thought, who better to sit down with the day after a big election uh, to talk about where we are and where we're going than my friend Jen. Jen Saki, my dear friend, who better to sit with the day after a momentous election than someone with whom I went through uh, momentous elections? Uh, uh, seems like a long time ago now. Ten years, in fact. I know. It is a long time yeah, ago. But you're still young. So are you. No. <laughs> uh, but normally, and I want to get to your journey because I know something about it. It inspires me. And there's stuff to talk about other than elections um, that, have to, that go to the world that you know a lot about. Uh, but, but we should talk about the election. We were just chatting before we started rolling about... Um, about how people reacted to the election, because my reaction to the election was that it was kind of an inspiring day. You saw all these first-time candidates get elected, and elected not just in the places you'd expect, but elected in places like South Carolina and Oklahoma, you know, in the suburbs of, uh, the city and suburbs of Dallas and Houston. And, you know, it's just... um, uh, and 114 million people voting as opposed to 87 million last time, six new Democratic governors. But, um, uh, you know, they're just a whole bunch of stuff and all these women. Yeah, I mean, the, I've spent the morning talking to Democrats and saying, buck up, buttercup. This was a good <laughs> night for us. I mean, it was a really good night for us. We had 100 women who are coming to more. 100 women are now going to be in the House of Representatives. That's more than ever in history. You have two Muslim American women. You have first time candidates running. You have women beating uh, incumbents who have been in their seats 20 years who are older white men and they're coming to Congress over them. There are a lot of inspiring stories in the night that aren't really getting told uh, because we're litigating this. Did we have well, a blue also, wave I or think not? What's, what's missed, you know, uh, uh, I've quoted this before here, but Gary Hart once told me Washington's always the last to get the news, yeah. <laughs> which I think was incredibly, incredibly prescient and, and insightful. Uh, but um, the style of campaigning that these candidates did to win was not as depicted. They weren't on sort of kind of left anti-Trump yeah. rants. They were very responsive to the, con- the to the real concerns of people, and they, by and large, reflected. Uh, you know, President Obama said this election was about the character of our country. I think these were high-character candidates. Yeah, it it really, and it is not the sexiest story, right? But a lot of these candidates who won district by district, if you look at Virginia, you look at Iowa, you look in Pennsylvania, they were candidates who were pragmatists. They ran on policy issues. They ran on health care. They didn't run just anti-Trump campaigns. They ran as people who might be open to working with Republicans. And they ran on, um, you know, a message. Um, And that is very different from if you and I both remember the PTSD from post-2016 when you had a certain wing of the party saying, the only thing we need to run on is we're going to destroy Donald Trump, period. 
And that's not what a lot of these people ran on. So it will be interesting to see how this plays out a little bit, because a lot of the sorrow, I think, of the early part of the night was, for good reason, this emotional reaction to, we thought Stacey Abrams was going to be governor. We thought that Andrew Gillum was going to be governor. And even as we're talking, they may still go to recounts. It's interesting, uh, that, that whole... That's the deal with live television and elections, right? We're a big country. We have different time zones. And what happens early tends to color the discussion, uh, uh, you know, moving forward. And so those races had a lot of note, uh, a lot of note, those candidates to Democrats uh, were uh, were very exciting. Uh, And uh, but perhaps the expectations, you know, Georgia is a tough, tough state for Democrats. If you had said um, a, a year ago uh, or even six months ago that this uh, y- a young uh, African-American uh, woman was, was going to uh, run a dead heat in Georgia, uh, you know, if you had said six months ago that Andrew Gillum was even going to be the nominee, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I, in a sense I feel for them because losing is disappointing, but... Uh, it kind of gainsays the the accomplishment and the fact that they've pushed and nudged history and you know maybe there will be recounts that turn them but in any case they've left a mark same with Beto O'Rourke in yeah. Texas who we were talking about what was the core in your view of his appeal I mean, I think what was appealing to me was that he was not a dumpster fire Democrat. I mean, he was somebody who ran on a positive message, who ran not a solely anti-Trump message, who ran as somebody who was going to welcome all parts of Texas into um, representing all parts of Texas. Um, you know, he, he people perceive him as running as sort of a lefty, but really that was about, we were talking about this, really about his style and how he, uh, you know, the fact that he used the F-bomb last night was sort of something that seemed like he was this kind of edgy lefty candidate. But really, he was a guy who repeatedly in his ads and his campaigning would re- would say, I'm running to represent all the people of Texas. You know, he had that kind of Which now- is, by the way, the advantage in running of states like that is, um, you know, there is a sort of philosophy. I don't know whether this, I, 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 I kind of smile at your phrase, dumpster, dumpster style Democrats, but um, this notion that you win by um, simply by talking to your own People. Uh, base, your own tribe. Um, when you run in a state like Florida, Georgia, or Texas, you know, you can't do that. And um, and I, I think that uh, that's why candidates who have the ability to reach out um, do better. And it's less about whether you're going to persuade people who are unpersuadable and more about that uh, you treat everybody with respect and, right. and openness. And I think that was what characterized O'Rourke's campaign to the point where, you know, and you're, you, you being younger than me, you know, there are a lot of people who are now going to urge him to think about running for president, uh, whether he, he says he doesn't want to. I, I think he, from what I understand, genuinely doesn't has everybody say that. that. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> doesn't everybody thing, rule it yeah, out. but I mean, he seems pretty authentic and yeah, uh, that's I think true. he, uh, you know, there may be family concerns and so on. I always said that, uh, you know, a lot of times the people who have enough, uh, enough uh, perspective not to want to run for president or exactly the people you'd like to be president. No, that's true. You know, I think if anything, um, Donald Trump sort of broke a lot of the rules and Barack Obama did in a different way about who should and can run for president. It's almost silly that every four years we start to talk about who in the Senate would be the right nominee. And those are rarely, if ever, the right nominees. There's only been three in the last 120 (laughs) years from the Senate. Right. I mean, And I actually think right now that um, the nature of our politics in Washington is that it draws you into the scrum with Trump. And it may be very bad preparation uh, for a a race uh, for president, though uh, one name that surfaced off of last night, partly because he 
offered himself with Sherrod Brown yeah. in Ohio. What, what do you think about that? I mean, I have no doubt if you're Sherrod Brown, you're probably going to talk to your, your David Axelrod. Not that there's only one of you, but whoever his David Axelrod is um, over the next couple of weeks and decide. Um, he can make the case that, you know, he is a Democrat who won in a red state. Ohio is was a pretty red state last night. Yeah. Um, and I think there's certainly appeal for him. He doesn't move me personally in the way that I think uh, Democrats are going to need to be moved. Um, and that's a very intangible thing. And um, well, describe what the way you think Democrats are going to want to be moved well, or need to be moved. You know, I think we often underestimate the value of um, charisma and authenticity and the ability and willingness to actually say what your position is on issues. Now, I'm now, not if I'm saying, Sherrod Brown, I'm listening to that and thinking, ouch. Well, I, that is not necessarily a take on Sherrod Brown. I think Sherrod Brown um, would be a good candidate who could surpass expectations and make himself and get himself into the top tier because he's a good campaigner. He's right in there where a lot of Democrats are on a number of economic issues. Um, but does he feel uh, fresh? Not necessarily. And I mm -hmm. think that we're in a year where we may need that. I mean, I'm not a believer that we need somebody who is going to out Trump Trump. Um, I don't think that's the winning. I think you're in the same place as that, maybe because I learned a lot from you over the years. But um, that's not. But I do think that if we have an antidote to Trump, it needs to be somebody who is inspiring and uplifting and bringing something new to the table. Uh, I don't know. I think it's untested whether he's that person or not. Yeah. Um, what about what, what, what else, what other lessons do you derive from the election yesterday? One, I think, you know, you, you and I both lived through in 2010, like the wave in reverse mm -hmm. and the issue that every Republican ran on was the Affordable Care yeah. Act. And this oh, time it seemed like changed. every winning candidate ran on was the Affordable Care yeah. Act, every winning Democrat. Uh, it's it's really interesting. I, I remember when I was uh, working for the president, I went to the Democratic caucuses and I said, you know, when people come to appreciate this, what this is, it's going to be a winning issue. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the people I made that case to ended up losing in 2010 mm -hmm. after casting FO because it took years for the Affordable Care yeah. Act to come on but healthcare and you know that there were three states where medicaid expansion three red states right. ne nebraska utah and idaho medicaid expansion on the affordable care act actually passed uh last night there is a hunger you know th this notion that people should be able to get uh, affordable health care uh, even if and especially if mm -hmm. they have pre-existing conditions is more resonant now than ever yeah. And, you know, I think the the Trump team makes a mistake. Well, maybe they're not factoring. They are factoring it in and they're just not saying they are. Healthcare is an economic issue. Right. I mean, that's the reason why it was effective for Democrats. And we were on the early end of advocating for something that ended up being a lot more popular years later, because, as we know, it was something that was going to be taken away. So that's, right. um, you know, which I is think so, which is, you know, I would g give him uh President Obama credit because I was one of those who said, to, you know, this could be really hard. It's going to you're going to pay a big political price for it. Yeah. Even as I, you know, I have my own child who has a, a, pre a chronic illness mm -hmm. and, and I knew the how badly reform was needed. But it was scary politically. And he paid a price. And frankly, a lot of members of Congress paid a price for it. And the hardest thing to do in politics is to make those decisions that in the short term are going to be unpopular and in the long term are going to pay great dividends. And he persuaded a lot of Democrats to follow him in that. Yeah. And I think, you know, even if we as we look at possible the, the 50 or so Democrats who may run, I mean, who are the people who are going to use their political will, you know, their political power to take risks like that? Um, some people you can know or some people you make a bet on. Um, and sometimes you just can kind of gather that from how they operate on the campaign trail. But I think that's another important um, characteristic and quality. I mean, healthcare. I think this is a lesson for Democrats moving forward, too, that, you know, we do have a message. This is part of the economic message. As much as um, the unemployment rate has been lower, um, 
the tax policies are not popular. And this is an, a winning economic uh, message and issue for us and should be in 2020 as well. Uh, now I'm going to weave some of your biography yeah, okay. in here, but um, this will be uh, in desultory fashion. But you, you worked at the DCCC. Yes, for Rom. For Rahm Emanuel, we'll get to Rahm in a second. <laughs> we uh, could just spend the whole time talking about Rahm. I think he would. I think he would appreciate <laughs> he would like that. It. Yes, but uh, uh, the next big discussion is going to be about Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, and uh, you have uh, uh, probably a dozen or more candidates who ran, probably more who mm-hmm. got elected who on the platform that they would not vote for her for leader, and there are another dozen in the House who who or so, maybe 10, who's already staked out that mm-hmm. uh, position. How does this, first of all, what do you think about that? Yeah. And secondly, how do you think it ends? Well, I'm going to take the second question first. Um, I think she is going to be the Speaker of the House. Um, because but how if you're, I, and I, you know, I think she's extraordinary, but how, how if, you've, if you've pledged that, how do you make your first vote your first vote, uh, an explicit abrogation of this pledge that was central to your campaign. Well, well, here's why I think she's going to be the speaker, because yeah. the process is she's going to be a caucus vote, right? People can vote against her in the caucus and vote for somebody else. Maybe they vote for somebody but who's... But most of them have been asked, will they vote for her on the floor if she's the candidate? Fair enough. But then how do you explain it? Well, did you want to vote for Kevin McCarthy or did you want to vote for Nancy Pelosi? I mean, it's a choice still. Mm-hmm. Also, I think some of these uh, candidates um, may have been given a pass by Pelosi, as we all know that that certainly yeah, can no, happen. Yeah, I think she will have given them, those who are most vulnerable. I think she will t- uh, say, "If you need to take a walk on me, then do it." But also, some of them are going to use it for leverage. I mean, Nancy Pelosi picks the committee assignments. We can hate that or think that's unfair, but. That's the reality. Um, and so for some of these candidates, if they can say, well, I get to be on Ways and Means, I get to be on the Armed Services Committee, whatever it may be, um, they got something for it. You know, they were a negotiator. I mean, ultimately, I think a number of these candidates will vote against her on the floor. But the question is, is there a viable alternative to her that can build a coalition in the Democratic Party? I don't think there is right now. Um, I think in two years that could change. And, and she may offer herself as a transitional speaker. She may. And, speaker. She, and I think she should. I mean, she has, you know, every reason to be proud of her, her time and her leadership, but she wants to go out on a high note. And I don't think she wants to go out in a place where Democrats build a viable candidate who's going to take her out in a way where she's not controlling it. Why do you think she's so uh, radioactive? Do you think she's radioactive? Uh, you know, I think um, I haven't seen coming out of this election result a race where Nancy Pelosi um, kept, you know, helped a, a Republican win. Um, maybe they're going to say there are some, but that was one of their big things on the campaign trail. Partly because so know. those who felt vulnerable uh uh, walked away. Yeah. So um, she's there's not a clear leader of the Democratic Party right now, partly because mm. we don't have the White House. Um, so she's radioactive because she is the face of the Democratic Party in the absence of an obvious nominee or a president. Um, and that's always radioactive for the other party. Um, but, you know, if that's all the Republicans have, I'm not sure that's going to be, you know, a, a forever winning strategy for them. I will say this, um, inside those four walls, I said on TV last night, I've never seen anybody better, better at marshalling her caucus, better at, you know, keeping them, uh, keeping bad things from happening. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's a lot, she's got a lot going for her there. You also worked for Joe Crowley. Yeah. In the house, who oh, many thought might be the speaker of the house someday, and 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 he got run over by the by one of the you know one of the marquee figures of the yeah. 2018 cycle, Alexandria uh, uh, Acacia Cortez. Yeah. Uh, what what did, what was your how did you feel about that? What 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 happened? Well, first, um, to weave in my, a little of my bio, my mom actually grew up in his district, and my grandparents lived there until I was, I don't know, eight or ten years in old. Queens. In Woodside, Queens. Um, and Joe is somebody I worked for um, 13 years ago, and he's this big, 
you know, barreling Irish guy who sings Bruce Springsteen in the car. He's right. just impossible not to like. Um, and on the stage, I think he sang The Night He Lost. He's quite good on the stage as well. Yes. Um, you know, I, I think what happened there was um, this is one of the most liberal districts in the country. He is in many ways been on borrowed time. He is a tall Irish white guy in a district that is extremely diverse. Um, you know, and they probably should have run the campaign earlier. I think anyone who works for him would have said that or taken her more seriously. Um, you know, they didn't camp, they didn't, um, you know, debate her and things along those lines. That's always a calculus. He lives here, moment. doesn't he? He lives here because in, he in had, had little kids who he's raising, yeah, but he's there every weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think um, what I think was troubling to me after that race, and I'm trying to separate my own personal love for Joe Crowley um, away out of this, is that 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 is not a model for how Democrats win across the country. No, I, I, you know, and she's that was one of the perceptions coming out of it. Um, but. Um, yeah, that's that was a bit of a heartbreaker for me. Yeah, well, I, I think the one thing that is that we have to keep in mind is this is a big, diverse country. Yes, there's no one size fits all formula. There are fundamental values and principles that unite people across parties, but every district is different. And Connor Lamb would not have won in that district, and she would not have she won. She would not in have his. won in Connor Lamb's. You know, and if you look at Joe Crowley, I mean, he's somebody who was a huge immigration advocate. I think he's even been arrested advocating for immigration. I mean, he was too progressive on many issues for many districts in the country. So, um, you know, I think she's a very compelling and young um, woman, and I think we should applaud that. But where we get to a dangerous place is when people like Joe Crowley are the enemy of the Democratic Party, and we're litmus testing him out of being a part of it. Um, well, I, I'll tell you, I, I, I mentioned this before, uh, I referenced this before, but he, he sang a Bruce Springsteen yeah. song to, dedicated to her, Yes, The Night He Lost. And that alone, that act of, of graciousness uh, was really noteworthy and yeah. said a lot about him. That, and that's very much who he is. I mean, I think he's you know, he was somebody who was contemplating a run for speaker, right? Yeah, um, no, I know. He was he was the speaker in waiting in many people's Yeah, so it tells you a lot about how your fortunes change in this town, um, and I think he'd be the first to say that. Um, but it also, also how this town can kind of give you myopia yeah. about what's it goes back to that Washington's always the last to get the news. Right, uh, right. So let's, let's, let's now, no, now okay. let's pick up this... Uh, Let's pick up this story of yours. Um, tell me about your folks and and their background and life in Stamford, Connecticut. Yes, the the deep red state of Connecticut that yeah. I grew up in. Um, uh, so I grew up in Connecticut. Um, my mom grew up in Queens in Joe Crowley's district. Um, Where are her folks? Uh, they are from. Queens. Um, you know, they are from uh, multiple so generations. Yeah, from kind of, um, you know, New York, Connecticut. Um, my uh, grandfather was a truck driver for Exxon. Uh, my grandmother had uh, probably a third or a fourth grade education. Uh, she was a pistol. She used to have a shot of whiskey once a year, and that's all she drank ever, <laughs> uh, which is pretty good for an Irish lady. Um, and um, my mom um, just recently retired as a clinical therapist. Um, she's sort of a kind of heart-feeling extrovert who everybody feels like they've known her for decades yeah, when I've they interact with her. Yeah, yeah she yeah. sort of – she will often call me and say someone told her their life story on a plane and she invited them to Thanksgiving. So <laughs> that's my mom. Um, and my dad um, also retired, but he's a, he was um, a Republican um, – my entire life until Barack Obama, actually. And I would say it was because of Barack Obama, but he didn't vote for Democrats I worked for before that, um, in part. But um, he's one of those sort of Northeastern Republicans who felt like the party left him. Greek family? Greek um, and Irish. Greek and Irish. I'm quite Irish, um, but have a little bit of Greek in there. You got the hair to show for it, yes. Yes, Saki is Greek. Um, And my dad grew up as an army brat, um, and he lived all over the country, all over the world, which was not easy. Um, And my grandfather was a doctor. Um, in the army, as was my great grandfather as well. So, um, 
yeah, I have kind of a military background on that side, one generation removed um, as well, which is um, something I'm quite proud of, even though it wasn't a direct generation, uh, direct generational. And you, your, your folks uh, split up. What, were you a kid when that happened? No, I was 19. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, you know, my parents are extremely different um, from each other. They're both sort of very outgoing extroverts. You want to have them at a party, um, both of them, <laughs> but but they're very different. Um, and so it wasn't a surprise. Um, I'm not one of those kids who was traumatized from it. Mm-hmm. Um, my youngest sister was 13. That's a much harder age um, to have your parents separate. Yeah, you were out of the house already. But I was in college, mm-hmm. um, and I had sort of already my own unique relationships with my parents. Um so, you know, they were married for 21 years, but both of my parents have been remarried for almost that amount of time, too. So it's always amazing how that happens. You, uh, among other things, you were a competitive swimmer. Yes. In, in high school and college. Yes. I was a, the captain of my high school swim team, um, the Greenwich Cardinals. Um, we won the states in Connecticut. It's not a big state, go, go but still Cardinals, proud. Yeah. Um, and then I swam in college through my sophomore year. And William Mary is a Division One team, not a kind of... NCAA huge powerhouse division one team, but I did swim in college, um, which was, um, you know, a great way to kind of get acclimated to school and meet good people and all of that. But then I quit because there's a big world out there. It also uh, speaks to you're 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 an incredibly affable and pleasant person, but there's a competitive side to you. You and that must have been uh, ent- entertained by this career in swimming? Yes. Um, I think there's no doubt about that. I mean, I um, sports and politics um, in a kind of dark way are similar. Um, you want to win. Now, I think politics, you want to win for a bit of a bigger, more impactful reason. Well, at its best. At its, at its best. best. I think we always have to remind ourselves, yeah. you know, I mean, one, of the, things, one, one of the things that um, bothers me about uh, the president is that, you know, you ask him, well, why'd you run that, mm-hmm. you know, racist ad? Well, it was effective. Yeah. Why'd you ridicule Dr. Ford? Well, we wouldn't have won the Kavanaugh thing if I hadn't done that. And the very clear message is winning is everything. Right. And, you know, I think we saw, um, you know, I don't buy, we're going back to the politics for a second, just because yeah, I, yeah. I don't it's buy this whole notion, do <laughs> jump around, yeah. I don't buy this whole notion that the, everybody who voted for Kavanaugh lost. That's just not true. There's a bunch of Democrats who won who voted for Kavanaugh. But I will say that the people who voted for Kavanaugh who lost probably did have an impact, right? I would guess. Um, and they did it knowing that. I mean, these are sophisticated um, you know, obviously leaders and legislators, but they also understand the politics of their state and they voted against it because they thought it was the right thing to do. Right. And that's what leadership is. And it reminds me of, as we were talking about health care, you know, we would never have passed the Affordable Care Act without a number of Democrats who voted for it, knowing it would mean that yeah, they would absolutely. probably lose. No, I know. Well, but and and those are the people who I so deeply admire, but yeah. I, I always joke that that's why Profiles encourages such a slim volume. It's short. Yeah, yeah. That, that Steve Driehaus is was you know an amazing one term <laughs> one term member of Congress. And um, there were there were there were Tom others. Perry Perriello Perriello others. Was another, yeah. yeah, who knew? Um, so uh, an initial you you uh, uh, you went through college. When when was your interest in politics? You know, I didn't didn't grow up in a political family um, at all, Um, a family that was very aware of current events and kind of, you know, what was happening in the news. And I remember my dad saying to my mom in 1984, you're the only person in the country who voted for Mondale. That's like my first political memory. Um, (laughs) But I really was. That was an exaggeration. Well, you know, when you're five, you're kind of like, Mom, what? You know, why'd you do that? Um, But I was really more interested. My parents watched the news, um, you know, at night. um, And I used to really like 2020 which is very odd for like a five or a six year old. Um, but I thought it was interesting. And I would say, sorry, Barbara Walters, if you're watching, if you're listening, um, 
I would say to my parents, well, by the time I have a job, um, I, she'll be dead and I'll just take her job. That was inaccurate and incorrect. Yeah. But point is, it's, I was a good chance to apologize. Right I paid here. attention yeah. to the I knew I was aware of world events. Um, but, you know, when I graduated from college, I thought I wanted to go into college admissions. I'd worked in the admissions office at um, William and Mary, um, where I went to college. And so I worked at a. Um, art school, which now, as it turns out, as a 21-year-old, I made the decision to go work for a for-profit um, art school, which was like um, bamboozling um, young minority students into like taking on debt. Are they still in debt. business? They are. Um, so that was a learning experience as well. But through that experience, I basically realized that um, I wanted to be a part of something bigger, and I started volunteering for the Arlington Democratic Party. I was for sure the youngest person by like 40 years of stuffing envelopes. Um, and um, that's where I really sort that's of a, got... That's a hipper place to be these days. It is hipper now. It was yes. not as hip back in 2001. Um, but there were well, still a lot of people... broken hips, maybe. There were broken hips. Yeah. Um, but, you Ageist know. joke. I apologize. <laughs> it's okay. I, I, I'm getting to the age where I can make jokes like that. It's okay. Your hips are I intact, could be, I could, I, as far are. as I can tell. You know, and when I, was, when I was volunteering for them, there was a guy who was probably 30. I thought that was old at the time. Um who said to me, you should go do a campaign. I think you'd like it. And in all the wisdom of a 23-year-old, I said, okay. And I moved to Iowa and broke up with my boyfriend and took a Just job like in that, health huh? insurance. <laughs> yeah, basically. So that's that's how I ended up in politics. And you, you 2002 was an eventful year there. I, uh, I was doing the re-election campaign of Tom Vilsack, yes. who was the governor of Iowa. And that was not an easy... No. That was not an easy race. He was an exceptional guy, but it was not an easy race. There was a recession, and everybody, he went in as an underdog. He did. He did. And he had he had he was running for re-election after beating a long-term Republican incumbent four years earlier, um, so as, as you well know. And I remember, I mean, one of the things that struck me about that experience um, was actually Governor Vilsack and how he— um, would talk about, and you'll probably remember this story, would talk about the letter that his father-in-law wrote to him about why Iowa was a place yes. he should stay. And I remember thinking that was something special and just something that was like telling a story of um, what it meant to be in public service and what it meant to kind of represent a state. And after that, I sort of was bitten and I ended up semi-staying in Iowa. The word story is such an important part of it, yeah. you know. Politics is storytelling, and I don't mean that in a making-up story kind of way. Mm-hmm. They have to be authentic stories, mm-hmm. stories about uh, the country, about your community, mm-hmm. about how uh, uh, about your own journey and yeah. about other people's journeys and some shared sense of, of, of values and so on. I think um, the the most successful people in politics are the people who understand that. No doubt about it. And, you know, sometimes when I'm talking to people who are thinking about running or thinking about changing their positions on issues, it it's often overcomplicated. I mean, sometimes the question is like, well, why do you want to run, you know, and what do you think about that issue? Let's like put aside whether right, you should right, change your position or how right. to how to like position yourself. And some of that's lost. I mean, I think that's one of the things that's appealing to people about Beto um, right. is because when you take positions that are contrary to your political interests, that perks people's ears up because they know it's not. They know it's authentic. It's real. Um, yeah. And that's what you really think about things. That question about why do you want to run is probably the most important question you can ask yeah. a candidate before you go to work for them. Yeah. Because those who are worth working for will have an answer. They will have and, thought about and it. And those, those yeah. who don't won't. Mm-hmm. And uh, it really, I mean, when Vilsack, uh, when I went to speak to Vilsack, uh, the, the, there was no, I didn't even have to ask the question. I mean, he said, this is why I want to do this. And it was very much tied in with uh, what he believed about Iowa, Mm -hmm. about his own incredible, he had a great personal story. He is an amazing personal story. You worked for John Kerry in 2004, Mm -hmm. who actually did did pretty well in Iowa in those caucuses. Yes. Um, I I traveled around with him on a bus for the highlight of the campaign. So I'm very fortunate in that. (laughs) How how did you end up? You were a spokesperson, like you were a press aide and you you were a press aide for his uh, for his wife. 
Yes. Uh, how did you move into you? This is a pretty quick trip from yes. selling bogus art school. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, programs. I um, am grateful to a ton of people, as anyone who has been in this business is. But you know, in 2002, I walked into the communications director's office for the Iowa Democratic Party. I can't imagine someone doing this today, but or me recommending someone do this, I should say, and saying to him is by a guy by the name of Mark Daly, who's in California now, is still involved in politics, saying, you know, I'm a pretty good writer. I'd love to like help out sometime if if I can. As for some reason, I don't know why, he humored me. I don't even know. He let me write probably bad press releases. But then when I went and worked for Kerry, I was John Norris, who was the state yeah. director who just ran for governor of Iowa, his assistant. And after about a month or two, um, I said to him, you know, when you hire a communications director, I would love to work for that person if I can have that opportunity. And for whatever reason, because he's a great human being and believes in helping young people, he said, OK. And Laura Caps, who you and I yeah. both know, uh, wonderful, amazing woman and boss, um, gave me a shot. And, you know, I always remember that because there were points along the way where nobody they shouldn't have said yes and they did um and obviously you prove yourself but that's how i ended up transitioning and i ended up traveling around with john Kerry because you know i think um i started to get to know the iowa reporters and um they need he had a lot of interest and they needed somebody to ride around with him on a bus and i said i'll do it i want to talk about Kerry in a minute and your experience later as uh as the uh, uh spokesperson for the state mm -hmm. state department but talk to me a little bit about him as a politician because mm -hmm. there's a lot of mixed feel uh reviews yeah um, i mean the guy was the presidential nominee and very nearly got elected mm -hmm. president of the united states so he must have had some ap uh, aptitude for this but there are a lot of criticisms of him as well what, what's your evaluation of him as a candidate you know when i worked for him the first time i was 25 and you know i was just happy to be there um yeah. so i would say my consumption of how good he was or wasn't um was not particularly sophisticated i do know that by the end of the campaign when we looked like we might win because of the exit polls my first thought was i don't want to win because i don't want to work with these people um because there was such a nastiness and way too many cooks in the kitchen of that campaign now that's not to take the the blame off of him um, because I think a textbook lesson from that, which he agreed to, was not to fight back to the Swift Boat veterans for truth attacks, right, as we look back. And ultimately, he had to agree to that. But when I went to work for him the second time, I remember thinking, all right, uh, this is a really exciting opportunity. I'm honored to be talking to them about this, but this guy is somebody who is aloof and disconnected and, you know, doesn't totally get it. And what I found was completely the opposite of that. So I guess my point is he was ill-served by a lot of things, um, perhaps his own decision-making when he was uh, at the height of his political career. But my own experience with him is that he is actually an extrovert who loves people, who is incredibly um, generous and thoughtful with his staff, who is very different from what the public perception of him is. So... As I look back, what are what would what my evaluation of him as a politician is that he was probably too cautious at times, took too much yeah. advice from different people. Right. Um, he would probably say something similar. Is yeah. my bet. He, um, you know, first of all, it's difficult. He he was touted as a future president from the moment he became a hero of the anti-war right. movement yeah. after serving in Vietnam, uh, and that's a burden to carry For a uh, long time. with you. Uh, my observation was that when he became Secretary of State, he may have thought, now I hear the rumblings that he's thinking about running for president yeah. again, but he may have thought this is my last public assignment and he may have approached it differently. I think that's true. But if you look back to his time even before that, he was a pretty ballsy guy. I mean, he went and tried to open the channel with Iran. Yeah. He like did tons of international work that was gutsy and high risk. Um and that's sort of what he loves. Um, it just wasn't what people saw about him because once you run for president, that right. perception of you is so hard. Well, and that to really that that sense of caution was yeah. very much uh, the the emblem that was stuck on him, mm -hmm. and and he unwittingly, mm -hmm. in a few places, helped uh, abet that. But that was really the defining distinction that probably cost him cost him the presidency.
So yeah, you work for Ram. Yeah. So how was that experience? <laughs> you were what? The you were the. I was the regional spokesperson for the Northeast and the Midwest. Um, so uh, when I the first day I was on that job. Um, Bill Burton, who was my boss at the time, uh, introduced me to Ram and said, this is Jen. She's going to be doing the Northeast and Midwest races, which uh, Ram didn't like really anticipate at that particular moment that that those would be a huge chunk of the races that he would be campaigning in. And he said, nice to meet you. I probably will never see you again. (laughs) So fast forward, my time working for Ram was I found with him and you know him so well. So uh, you may laugh about this story. You know, there was one probably a couple months into my time working for him where he said to me, you need to call Jackie Combs, a a then reporter at The New York Times, and picture this story about this particular candidate. And I said, "Okay, no problem. I literally went to the ladies room, came back. I called Jackie and she he had already called her, which made me quite angry. And I went into his office. I was probably tired um, and said, Okay, there is one press person. It's me or it's you. Who's it going to be? And after that, it was like barking back at an angry dog. We were quite good. Um, after that, and no, he like you know he responds to that. He if if you if you bark back, he does he does he respects that. Yeah, and he takes credit for me, and my husband, and I being together. He does absolutely. So there's that. Uh, yeah, yeah, you guys met at the the. Uh, we met at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. He, Greg was um, Rom's body guy, and Greg is a very calm, unflappable yeah, guy. Yeah, he is. Except when it comes to the Bengals, the Cincinnati <laughs> Bengals, which is his, like kind of one, you know, advice. Um, and um, we met, and Rom tells the story as it proceeded in years later that like he offered Greg a week off if he would ask me out. That is that not is at apocryphal. All based in fact, that doesn't sound right. But. <laughs> That doesn't but sound. That doesn't he does take sound. credit. He deserves some of it, an element of it. Yeah, he. Um, uh, and then uh, you you came to work for the Obama campaign. Mm-hmm. Did, now was that through through Bill Burton? That was through a couple of things. I mean, I actually interviewed with a bunch of people who worked for Hillary Clinton, um, many of whom I liked a great deal. Um, before I ever could get a call back from the Obama people. Um, and I turned down a job because that's not where my gut was. Um, and um, and also because one of the people who talked to me about the job said, you may not like her, but she's going to win, which was probably a prediction of problems pitch. for the future. But yeah. um, I, I ended up working for Obama. I ended up with Obama because I reached out to Robert Gibbs. Yeah. Bill helped me reach out. I knew Dan Pfeiffer a little bit through his wife, Sarah, his then wife, uh, Sarah. Um, and um, so... You know, it was through a bunch of people, but I, you would appreciate because you and I both love Robert Gibbs very dearly. Yeah, um, our former, uh, yes, and he is press one of my favorite bosses yeah. I've ever had. But um, after I had met with him and sat down with him, I started interviewing for other jobs on the Hill. I remember like for Menendez and Harkin and a bunch of people to be their communications directors. And I finally emailed Robert and I said, uh, I'm going to have to take one of these jobs if it's offered to me because I need a job. I mean, you know, I'm 27 years old. Um, you know, if and if you can't tell me, I can. Ha- I can. I have a job on the Obama campaign. He said, "Yeah, you have a job. Can you come? Can you move to Chicago next week?" Um, so that's sort of how it went, and I did. Yeah, that's Robert. Sometimes needs a little nudge. That yeah. way. <laughs> yes, exactly. But, and so, tell me about that experience. I mean, I know I have, you know, my own yeah. rich trough of of memories uh and and you you know your your presence on that plane uh was is one of them i mean it was a great group of people it was i mean and yours too and you know i know we're not supposed to like tout this on when you're interviewing me but you're one of the people and that campaign too but you were a heart of that campaign who taught me that you can be a nice person and be a good person and still be like tough and good at your job and I think that's an important lesson for a lot of young operatives to see but a lot of us who you know I was 28 when I started that campaign so I had done a bunch of stuff some people like to think we like grew out of the womb and did it I had done some stuff but that was a really um important period for me where I became kind of who I was professionally. Um, And I was in the headquarters for the first seven or eight months um, doing whatever was needed. Um, And then I remember going to Dan Pfeiffer and saying, uh, you know, I worked in Iowa. I know a little bit about Iowa. Can I go out? Can I just go and help out in Iowa? You tell me whatever I can do. I know some of the Iowa reporters. You can put me on a bus with these people, whatever. I was sort of open to it. And he said, okay. Um, thank you, Dan. Um, and so I ended up on the bus when when there was traveling press. And 
Um, you know, and then as you and I both remember, the primary continued and I never got off. Um, and it taught me uh, so many things. I mean, you know, one was, um, you know, just watching how difficult running for president is. You see it firsthand in many ways, but you certainly see it firsthand when you're traveling a, with a candidate. Yeah. It's a it's a I think people don't appreciate how much yeah. of an ordeal it is. And I mean I kind of think it's a it's a it's a it's an ordeal and it's meant to be because yes. the presidency itself is such an ordeal. It's so challenging. It's like preparing you for it. It is and testing you to see how you handle it. Yeah. I think one of the reasons Obama voters in their wisdom chose to make him run the whole gauntlet was because they wanted to see how he handled it. And it worked. It did. It helped. Um, yeah, which is why I think Democrats need a campaign in 2020. Absolutely. And people will rise in the moment from right. it. Um, we don't, may not even know who will. Um, you know, and I think um, that experience for me, I was, I always thought of myself as kind of a young kid before that. I was. I mean, I was 27 years old. And, you know, there are moments, certainly through my time working for Obama and working um, in a variety of jobs, where you just have to kind of grow into yourself and kind of put your big girl shoes or pants on or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, that campaign, you know, there were so many reporters on that campaign who were now Savannah Guthrie and Jake Tapper and all sorts of people and seeing how hard they worked is another thing I learned. Also remember how many times, you know, there were certain things where you'd have a terrible day or Obama would have a terrible day and you had to get up the next morning. He had to and sometimes try the whole thing again, like trying to unwrangle yourself from Reverend Wright or whatever it may be. And so these were all I'm very fortunate I was able to see all of it firsthand because really seeing a presidential campaign and how the candidate is operating is such a unique part of it. Um, and, you know, I was there living out of my hot pink plastic suitcase for 11 months traveling with him <laughs> Which around Which is a good country. way to make sure that it doesn't get lost. It died a day before the campaign uh, ended, so I think it was, may it rest in peace. It served its purpose. <laughs> you, uh, you, you were the deputy press secretary mm -hmm. in the White House with Robert. Yep. Um, what do you, what did you learn there and what... As you watch this White House, mm -hmm. I mean, I imagine there are days when uh, Sarah Sanders wants to go in and say to the president, hey, there's only one spokesperson here and it's either me or you. I'm sure she does. Um, now, I don't know whether she says it, actually, but... Seems unlikely. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh. You know, I think I learned from that um, the power of the White House podium. And it's changed and media consumption has changed and everything. It's still a very powerful tool. Um, they don't use it well not just because of Sarah Sanders, because of the president, uh, because they don't brief a lot, because they step on their own message for a variety of reasons. But, you know, when I, working for Robert, I mean, God bless him, uh, he let me have the economy as a portfolio where I knew nothing about the economy when I started. It was kind of a key time to have it. It was kind of a key time to have it. Um, and, um, you know, you, I got sort of a master's degree in Econ 101 from all the people that you and I worked with. Which um, is really the great thing about working in the White House because yes. you, you have acts, you, you're dealing with these really consequential, mm -hmm. interesting, complex issues, and you have access to the most brilliant people in the world. And public servants, not all, but most of the public servants I worked with are incredibly patient and generous with their time and thoughtful about how they are thinking about things and talking yeah. about things. And, uh, you know, the amount of time I spent with everybody from Larry Summers to Tim Geithner to Gene Sperling talking through issues, um, you know, it was really a, a formidable experience. And watching um, Robert in the first two years, that was a very busy time, a tough time in many ways. I mean, as you lived through and as well, a, a consequential time. Um yeah. And that role was was hugely important, but he had the confidence of the president and the relationship with the president, and um, that's pretty essential, I think, yeah. to be successful. And, and he's a smart, tough, and All I of that. and I think what people don't recognize, and a deeply, deeply passionate uh, person about the country. Yeah. And I remember standing next to Robert when, uh, who's from Alabama, mm -hmm. uh, when the the when Senator Obama spoke in Denver at the stadium to accept the yeah. nomination 45 years to the day after Martin Luther King mm -hmm. had given the 
I have a dream speech, and I, I looked over, and there's te- tears streaming down mm-hmm. Robert's face, and nobody would expect that. No. You know, that, uh, you probably will be mad that I mentioned it. <laughs> but, uh, You're sensitive. But I, I, but I knew why. I knew he had come out of the South, and he was really sensitive to the history of the South. Yeah. And I know he loved Obama as a friend, yeah. but I think he also felt like he was part of this cleansing history and um, yeah, people don't. Robert don't Robert's a, a deep, a mystery deep guy. To people. Deep I know, guy. and you know, my experience with him. I mean, he's probably the best, if not one of the best bosses I've ever had, because he really trusted the people who worked for him, and he gave me. He was always there as a safety net, but uh, also believed in you and was confident in you. And I remember him saying to me. You should be in that meeting. I'm going to walk you into that meeting, like economic meetings and things like that. And sometimes I think, especially in this age of kind of, you know, women empowerment, which I'm all for, but sometimes that means that women don't look to men as being their mentors. And I think that's a shame because I look to my mentors and sadly, most of them were men, but I wouldn't be where I am without without that. Um, And he's certainly one of those people. You went to the state, you took a little uh, turn in the private sector and then you went to the State Department. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, there too. I mean, you weren't an expert in uh, no. So, so talk about that experience of trying to master yeah all of the all of the issues and the nuances of a really complex portfolio. Yeah, you know, I um, after the campaign, I realized I wanted to go back into government, and um, I wanted to do something interesting where I could learn something. Now I had actually people like Gibbs say to me. You mean the campaign of 2012. Because yeah. um, you, you, you came back. back. Yes, yeah. and I was on that campaign as well. Um, Gibbs, who we were just talking about, said to me, you know, you should do this, but if you do it, you could also ruin your career. You know, meaning you could stumble, which is actually very candid advice. Um, and I went into the job not having a background in foreign policy and not coming from the Foreign Service um, and going to a building that was understandably skeptical, still is, has always been of political appointees in a very um, forward-facing job. Um, so that was a bit scary, um, but one of my favorite jobs I've ever had, too. Yeah. And you you worked on uh, some issues that are, you know, including uh, the beginnings of the Iran yeah. issue, and uh, and and you know the, the the Secretary of State Kerry, the Obama administration, very much uh, involved with these global institutions mm-hmm. and so on. Um, and now you're working at the Carnegie Endowment, mm-hmm. so you're still working on these issues yeah. with, with Bill Burns, who was yeah. the great the Deputy Secretary yes. of State. How do you view what's going on now? You know, I think an undertold story of the Trump time is the damage he is doing to our positioning around the world. Um, It's not undertold around the world. It's probably undertold in the United States um, because, you know, the United States has long been this country that was driving the agenda for all international forum. Um, You know, there wouldn't be a Paris climate change agreement without us. There wouldn't be an Iran deal without us. And it's not that he's just tried to rip up accomplishments of President Obama's. He's kind of removed us as the head seat at the table um, in a lot of these forums. Well, the United States has sat since World War II. Exactly. The United States has really been the impetus for the development of these international institutions on the theory that that's the best way to avoid a third world war and deal with some of these global issues. Um, but... Uh, you know that the counter argument from the Trump world mm-hmm. would be uh, that these institutions are incursions on America's sovereignty, America first. You know, I just think that illustrates a complete misunderstanding of the internet connectivity of the world. Um, you know, to argue that um, China tariffs is going to be advantageous to American workers is just false economically. But there's also a lot of 
potential implications of kind of our security in Asia, um, our positioning in the world that aren't factored into to the same degree. I understand America first sounds good and it probably sounds better than global first or whatever the alternative yeah. would be. But, you know, there's a there there are many advantages to the United States being leaders in the world um, to Americans and to uh, the American people. Um, and you know, the fact that we've moved away from that has also made it so that um, the United States is not a sure bet anymore. Um, you know, we always were a country that people wanted to, other countries and businesses wanted to invest in, wanted to go, wanted to partner with. And that's becoming less and less the case. That's not good for the United States um, if China or other countries can kind of take over that role in the world or if, or if other countries can work around us. Um, and that's what we're starting to see happen. So that's a little more complex and harder to explain. But especially if Trump is reelected for another four years, there are some long-term implications that will be very difficult to unravel. From. And what are the implications? I mean, what are the implications of not having these relationships, the practical implications of, for example, mm -hmm. withdrawing from the TPP or... Well, uh, withdrawing from the TPP means it has already happened that all of those countries in Asia are developing, have developed a trade agreement with each other, um, that China is looking for unilateral trade agreements with them. That means they are going to be able to move and trade their goods with each other. And the United States is going to be out of that. Um, in a real life, in a real way, you know, the cost of goods will probably go up even in the short term. But we also are sort of out of the global conversation with one of the most important regions of the world, and that's Asia. And that has national security implications for our own safety. It has relevance implications. It also means that we don't have a place to get things we care about to be considered on, on a global, uh, you know, in the global uh, agenda. He's found an audience for these positions in part because of the implications of, of globalization in, mm -hmm. in communities around the country. Do you think uh, uh, that uh, President Obama and uh, Democrats generally have done a, uh, a bad job of communicating uh, about the, the trade-offs and, 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 and really dealing with some of the impacts of these uh, big changes in in the economy. Yes. I mean and and I think you it, it's not fair actually to just blame Trump. Um there are um there hasn't been a little a lot of political courage on either side about how to communicate about a lot of these issues. There are some negative imp impacts of trade, no doubt, in particular communities around the country. There are also positive impacts of trade in particular communities, sometimes in the same states. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, that you always hear from pe proponents of trade, uh, and I am on that side of the debate, yeah. but it's like, well, no, trade trade produces more winners. But the winners aren't necessarily with the jobs that are produced aren't necessarily jobs for the people who've lost their jobs. And In certain and they, communities. Right. I mean, there are also... Um, Trade is also allowing for certain communities in Ohio to flourish, right? So, you know, I'm I think that you, you, anyone who says trade doesn't have negative implications is not being honest either. But I think what's happened is the anti-trade kind of America first version on both sides of the aisle. Um, look, I mean, Hillary Clinton walked away from TPP. You know, yeah. it's not it's both sides. Um, has not we haven't been acknowledging the reality that the way of life that has been the case for perhaps coal miners, steel workers in certain parts of the country is no longer achievable that like that they need to change over the course of time. That is a hard message to deliver. She started down that road in the campaign and she got um, and she got rebuked and she, then uh, and 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 sort of pulled away. She from... did. I'm not saying it's a winning political yeah. message. No, no, no. I understand. Um, yeah. I, I understand. We. I can't go without asking about Iran. Sure. Because I know how much uh, 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 Kerry in particular invested yeah. in that agreement. What are the implications of, as we speak, we're one day now into the mm -hmm. snapback of the sanctions yeah. that were uh, that were removed as a result of the agreement. Um, what do you think the implications of that are? Well, I think the question is, what did we get out of the original agreement? And what we got was visibility into what Iran was doing. So we would know, um, one, there was measures that meant they weren't acquiring a nuclear weapon, weren't moving toward it. But also we knew what they were up to. Um, and we essentially gave that up. 
Um, and that's a big thing to give up uh, when we haven't really gotten anything in return. Now, the current administration is making a calculus that if they put more snap more sanctions back into place, they'll bring Iran back to the table. But there's no real evidence of that. And I don't know that the, the same play or is going to work a second regime. time. Or topple the, topple the regime, which is another one of their objectives. But, um, you know, I think to suggest that Iran not moving forward to acquiring a nuclear weapon was not a success is sort of, um, you know, making the, 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 the perfect the enemy of the good. And that's never really great global policy. So, my friend, I could talk to you forever because you're so smart and thoughtful, but um, I got to let you go. Well, it was a pleasure. Always fun chatting with you. Always fun chatting with you, Jen Psaki. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.